Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Manufactured in upstate New York, an employee-owned company, Golden makes the best acrylics, oil paints, and watercolors that you can buy. You can find them in your local art store, or you can find them online at goldenpaints.com. Jessica Dickinson was born in St. Paul, Minnesota, and has lived and worked in Brooklyn, New York since 1999. She received an MFA from the Cranbrook Academy of Art in 1999 and a BFA from the Maryland Institute College of Art in 1997. Jessica has presented solo exhibitions at James Fuentes in New York, Altman Siegel in San Francisco, David Peterson Gallery in Minneapolis, and Maestra Raval Buena in Madrid. Group exhibitions include New Ruins at the American University Art Museum in D.C., See Sun and Think Shadow at Gladstone Gallery, room-by-room monographic presentations from the Falconer and Rachofsky collections at the Warehouse in Dallas, Come Through at Sycamore Jenkins, Besides With, Against, and Yet, Abstraction from the Ready-Made Gesture at the Kitchen. Works by Jessica are held in the collections of the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum, the Rachofsky House in Dallas. Jessica's awards include a residency at Steep Rock Arts in Washington, Connecticut, an individual grant from the Bell Foundation, Far Path Residency in Dijon, France, Change Inc. Grant, and the Marie Walsh Sharp Art Foundation Space Program in New York. Last summer, James Fuentes presented from an online exhibition of Jessica's notebook drawings made during her New York City stay-at-home orders, and her current solo exhibition, With, is on view at James Fuentes in New York through February 28, 2021. I caught up with Jessica for a talk of pace, process, punk shows and basements, drawing from painting, and much more. Here's our conversation. Perfect. Sounds good. It was uh, it was nice to get your email. You know, was it? It was four years. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Is that serious? Sorry about that. It's been a, you know, I I thought about it from time to time, but I really felt uh, I needed to be in a you know, this felt like the right time. And I, I think that, as I said, this uh, chronic headache, um, which is still kind of a condition I'm, I'm dealing with the, but like once I was off the pain medications, it, I can, I can just speak a bit clearer and yeah, I feel more like myself. So. Yeah. That's, that's important, especially if you're going to be talking for more than five minutes, you want to kind of feel yourself. Yeah. I mean, I've functioned, I've done, I've taught, I've had shows, I've, parented i've been fine but i think that you know um it's uh i'd rather be in this i i never i actually didn't ever know if i would ever be not on pain medications again so you know i think at some point i would have maybe just said okay let's do it but then i'm happy to be in this state so yeah you know it's it's funny in teaching um having students once in a while come up with it and when i was a student in college i was getting migraines and i think it's like this not well maybe it is but it just seems like something that's not talked too much about you know but it really like if you get them in earnest they're like debilitating 
Yeah. And, you know, it's one of those things that actually we all get headaches, right? Yeah. So everyone thinks, well, just eat this or drink that and take this and it'll go away. Um, and, you know, it is something that's not visible. Right. It's not pain that's not visible. And it, it can, you know, so I think it's hard for people to understand. I mean, I didn't, my husband gets the debilitating migraines. I had never gotten a headache like that before. And this actually wasn't the kind where you needed to lay down type yeah. of migraine. It was a new daily persistent headache. I got a headache and it didn't go away. And it had, uh, it had migraine, it has migraine qualities like uh, the, you know, uh, sensitive to sound and light and things like that. So it, it wasn't so bad that I couldn't walk around, yeah. right? And needed to lie in a dark room like some people with migraines, but it was constant pain in my head. That right. um, kind of got worse, um, the, you know, with chronic pain, um, your body, since it's always trying to support you with chronic pain, that starts to just get fatigue. And then I was sleeping, you know, just sort of like kind of snowballed. So, but yeah, it's, it's something that is not, um, it's a neurological disease actually, you yeah. know, and it, it's, and there's so many different reasons people have it and sources of it. And so, yeah, it took a while to figure out the sources of mine and how to treat it. And, you know, luckily I have a great headache specialist. And, yeah, that's really, uh, that's really, you know, good because, uh, when I would get them in school, I feel like it must have been stress related because I would always get them after final yeah. crits. <laughs> so I, seriously, I would be fine during, I remember one time, I think it was my, the last semester of my first year of grad school. I, I remember having my crit and then I walked to, maybe it was like two after I went to the other, cause you would watch the other people go. And I remember getting the aura where I could, you know, you lose your vision in one eye. Basically it just turns into like this white halo. And then mm -hmm. I knew you have like 20 minutes between when you see that ocular aura and when the headache hits and the headache is like brutal. So yeah. I, like, I remember just ducking out and like, you know, taking Advil because that was all you could do at the time, you know, mm -hmm. but the worst headache, like you had to turn off all the lights, get under a blanket so there's no light and just like ride it out. It was brutal. Those things yeah. were terrible. I realized that they were peanuts that were would also trigger them too because I was eating peanuts after I got out of school <laughs> like crazy. And, and like I remember one day I just had these, I got two for one at Seatown. <laughs> and I had these giant jars of planters peanuts and I was just eating them like, you know, straight out of the jar like crazy. And I kept getting migraines like, and usually they would be spaced out, but I was getting them day after day. And I was like, what the hell is going on? And I went, to I was in my studio and I went to grab these peanuts and you know you hear about triggers and yeah. I thought oh maybe this is it and then I stopped eating them and then they stopped so it was definitely like you know that was not helping matter yeah no and it's interesting when it's these multiple things at once yeah. you're trying to figure out what it is um so I'm glad you found a solution to that you know yeah it's hard though it like when anytime you have something like that where like if you Google it and it's like symptoms may include, it's almost like COVID is like that. It's like yeah. symptoms may include headache, you know, like all this laundry list of things that, mm -hmm. you know, you could have a cold or you could have, you know, you could sneeze once and you're like, uh oh, is this it? You know, it starts to play mind <laughs> games on you. Yeah. Yeah. But it sounds like, so you've, it's kind of under control. You're feeling like you've, yeah, it, or you're just it living is. with it. 
No, I, I, it, it, it's under control, but I'm living with it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I'm not in constant totally. pain anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. it took, a, it was about two years of constant pain, two and a half years, um, and then we, I through multiple pain management, uh, osteopath, acupuncture, all of seen all types of people we i you know kind of figured out the source of sort of nerve damage and spine misalignment and um also just work stress caffeine consumption all mixed together you know um, that's the deal breaker so, caffeine so, i'm not giving that up no <laughs> like it, my one that, device. it took me a long time to get to the point and it was almost like i had to be like i can change yeah I can stop drinking this much or espresso. I had to stop. I, I when my the headache came, I was drinking eight espressos a day and sleeping about four hours a night. Well, that, so, that's not. Yeah, <laughs> that's not like moderate <laughs> coffee consumption. No, no, no. But um, you know, it was legendary. But yeah. um, I, you know, I, I, you know, I was a working mom. You know, so oh, I, yeah. I don't know. I just, I just did what I needed to do, and and I, one doesn't. Not everyone. This is not, it, and I guess it. But I have to say, it wasn't simply that. It was the combination of things. Yeah, def- so, definitely. So, so, but then you know, cutting the can. Um, I still drink caffeine. I drink matcha tea. Yeah. I don't drink coffee or espresso. So just shifting things, you know, made a huge difference. And life, other lifestyle changes like prioritizing sleep and, um, you know, I meditate every morning. I do these stretches for my spine every morning. I exercise. You know, so it, it's a, it's a. It, it, it was a lot of lifestyle changes along with Botox injections. And um, that has been a lifesaver. So yeah. in, in the back on my, in the back of my head, cause the headache was in the back of my head, not the front. Right. So, you know, um, I don't want to go on and on about it, but it, it, it was yeah the last four years, I think when you contacted me, I was like, I have this minor health issue. I'm on these pain medications. I can't do it. And I, it turned into, you know, a year, this was, you know, a lot not minor i mean minor in that i'm walking around but it you know it's it's life-changing in ways but i think in the end good i feel good yeah and i'm and i feel fortunate because the that um diagnosis new daily persistent headache it does it can last two to seven years or the rest of your life so i feel fortunate for this and i just have to take care of myself and yeah it's it's funny that they also that's the same diagnosis when you have a kid a persistent daily headache (laughs) Am I right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, um, yeah. Just so you know, like, you'll be living with this. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I'm and uh, no, it is kind. Of, you know, um, that it's a joke around our house too. Or my husband was like, "I think your headache went away when I organized the Tupperware drawer." You know, <laughs> certain things. <laughs> <laughs> like, but um, yeah, I, I have to say too, I now that I don't have a headache, I'm really enjoying parenthood. You know yeah. what I mean? Like yeah, appreciating no, I it. Imagine. It was two and a half years of like uh, having a six, you know, I being sort of checked, not checked out, but I was present. But now I'm like, oh, I this feels great. Yeah, you know, this is fun. Yeah, so. that, that's great. So um, the one thing that I so I haven't been going to galleries that much recently. Mm-hmm. I mean, I understand. You know, understandable, right? I mean, I guess in the summer I would occasionally go out and see a couple of shows that were friends shows, but it wasn't like the casual, you know, going around, taking a day for the Lower East Side or a day for Chelsea and just yeah. strolling. Sadly, that's been curtailed. But so I haven't seen the show, but I was reading about, you know, the current show and thinking about your work. And there was something 
there was like a parallel between the the timing and the pace between our con our uh communication and then thinking about time in relation to your work because obviously it seems like that's something that's baked into the sort of process and the conceptual side of the way that you're working that you know is it's like four paintings a year for this is that correct yeah about yeah roughly so that's that's a that's a pace you know yeah and i was thinking about the work and and that kind of slowness like there were things that were popping into my head like poetry and slowness and silence and i was started thinking about like a lot of music stuff with like john cage and you know and fenez and like all this kind of like ambient i don't know it it was really cool and then i thought too in relation to that um a lot of that kind of work like one of my favorite artists i talk about him a lot is Ankawada, you know mm-hmm. and that kind of pace of work is so compelling and that the commitment to a sort of insular process in the studio that is based on a commitment of time over time. And, um, and I think about today and like scrolling culture and Googling and how, and you know, you teach too, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and you teach students and they have a different kind of wiring of attention span and, 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 you know, a pace, like things are faster and then thinking about the alignment of that work with the pace of uh, imagery outside of that, that must be something that's really interesting if you step outside of your studio in the making of it and think about that relationship. I don't know if that's a question, but... <laughs> um, the relationship to the pace outside. Yeah, like culture's the, pace and like yeah. <laughs> the speed of everything. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, I do think about that a lot. And that's part of some of the motivation in the work. You know, I mean, I think I've always been a little off pace. And I've sort of just a while ago learned to embrace it. And, um, and, you know, think it's just part of what I have to offer people, you know, with my work, instead of trying to be different than I am. Um, And uh, I think... uh, you know, it's that I, I think it's, yeah, I, I just, and I think in some ways, even like the more recent work is a bit more, even more physical and tactile. And I think that is my own relationship to sort of disembodiment and image, you know, connecting that way. Not that I don't think, it's not that I think it's bad, right? I, yeah. I mean, I think there's some fortuitous things that come from it um, as a way to connect. I, I just think that um, I've always been attuned or more interested or needed this sort of slowness and this slow building of things. Um, and, uh, you know, just trying to sort of let myself be there and do it all the way, because right. if you don't do it all the way, it's not the thing it's, you can't compromise it, you know, definitely. Um, so you know, it also means I'm just visit a, you know, a slower pace with whatever we call a career or whatever, or, you know, a slower pace at putting work out in the world. And, you know, um, I, and just kind of liking that and accepting that. And I, um, but I do think, you know, I think just with experience with students, I I think the space is there. Like, I, I think sometimes we get, you can get attached to what is going on in culture right now and that being the thing and that's being all that's possible 
And I, I kind of just think so much is possible at once. Um, and um, oh, some artists have given me permission to do this and learning about them like Jada Feo yeah. and the Rose, right? And I think I was, it, maybe it was over 10 years ago or so where I was really researching that more and learning more about it. And I was having a tough time with the pace of the expectations in the art world and the pace of the world and the pace at which I work and what I'm interested in and, and reading about the eight years it took her to make that and, and the way she did that gave me permission. And I like, kind of found a friend, you know, that was on the same wavelength as me or something. Right. And I think that that's maybe more how I function less like who now this or that I'm like, there's this broad span of time. Um, another weird thing that gave me permission, which I feel really dorky about, but um, um, I don't know if you read Bob Dylan's Chronicles. Um, I, this is way back in 2004 or something maybe when it came out. And he, was, um, he talks about like when he was in New York and the writing music for the, um, what, did, what did they call it? There's a term for it. You know, it was like the sort of factory that made pop music and even whatever. And he said, you know, people thought songs had to be three minutes long to be good or for, or people could only listen to songs that were three minutes long. Yeah. That's all they could handle. But I figure, and he was studying old folk music and the civil war. He had his, all his own weird obsessions. And um, he said, I figured if people can sit through a symphony, we, they have the capacity to sit through a 13 minute song. You know, yeah. So I think part of it is also just a belief in what people are capable of, what viewers are capable of, and not shorting that, and and knowing that, yeah, I'm not going to get everyone. It's not going to be the fast read, um, but for those that need it, or those that want it, or those that may come across it, it's there for them. Definitely. And so. I think it's important for that to exist. You know what I mean? I guess in talking about that pace too, like you're talking about the art world or that or pop culture in the sense of like the, the machine of it, but there's also just, you know, the pace of making and then there's the pace of people who will come in and engage with the work and how they engage with it. And those mm -hmm. are so different. You know what I mean? So there's, there's yeah. this kind of like conceptual conceptualization of the process that becomes really compelling in the difference between the making and the receiving of the work. And mm -hmm. I think like, uh, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's just a different kind of experience because in art making, you're in the studio making that work over a long period of time and then you hang it on the wall and then people come in. Whereas like, if you think about this relationship to music, you know, songs used to be a certain length because records were only, you could only cut a record that was so long. So once they started having long playing records, then compositions could get longer. But mm -hmm. like jazz music, you know, if you go see Coltrane playing for an hour, you're watching it happen. Like it's enveloping you. It's a performance yeah. that you're within and you feel it. Whereas in the art making, like in that kind of venue, it's it's made and then you see it. And it's like, well, let me yeah. tell you, it almost has to be told, like, look how long it took me to make it. But the one thing I thought was really cool about the work too is these these rubbings that you're doing of it which become this almost like this time you know like a time lapse of the painting mm -hmm. how did you come up with that idea it's a really cool um, idea <laughs> thanks um i was you know 
I think a lot of great ideas come from conversations with friends. Sure. <laughs> I don't think they all come from one's brain alone. Um, but I, I think what I have been working on the paintings, um, I had started to, um, with my works on paper, which is something I do outside the paintings, which kind of gives me the space to go outside of the larger concepts in the paintings. I had started doing rubbings of the paintings to incorporate into the works on paper. And part of that is a, a friend came to my studio uh, and was like, these would make interesting prints. Like, could you make a print off of this? And then I sort of didn't really want to make a print, but I started incorporating it into my drawings. And then I started to think, what if I just made like, just near the end of the, it was my first show with, in New York with James Fuentes. What if I made, and I know the surface of these paintings is so different from the atmosphere, what you see in them, right? And the tactility of them, the, the thing of them, right? The paintings have a thingness that goes outside of its image in a sense. And so I was like, what if I, and I think a conversation with my husband, it was like, what if, who's also an artist, what if we, what if like there was just something that was more direct, just extremely direct. And also because my, I'm over, I've taken over working into a whole thing. Like I'm a worker, you know, like I work a surface. So for me to have something in the work where I just do the rubbing and I can't touch it, you know what I mean? Can't yeah. do anything to it. So I like that. So, you know, it took a while to experiment, to find the right paper, to find the way to do it, to, uh, Every you know should have what should it just be graphite all this stuff but I um, first started by making like the final remain the remainder of the rubbing of the last stage of the painting because that's kind of when the idea came to me of how to do this lay the painting on the floor do the rubbing and then that was um, in that first year I did a little cat like catalog for it like a homespun you know self published thing that just had images of the remainders. And so I think part of that was like, what is a part of what we're looking at and part of what this is, is an object and is a thing. And then I think there's also a poetics to the remainder there. It's there, um, you know, the way they almost are like an X-ray or reverse of the painting. So then the next um, body of work, um, I decided to do a rubbing of the painting every time I was done with a stage of, of it. Um, not every time like I changed the color, but every time I sort of finished a, a passage on the surface of the painting or a procedure on the painting, um, I would do a rubbing. And so um, that uh, that's how that was born. And and that was I did kind of mostly as an experiment for myself um, to see how this would work. And it actually really freed up the work for me because there's things in, um, you know, like I, that are very labor intensive and you get kind of attached to or something because you made it, but you shouldn't because you got to make the painting work. However, it is, it let me like, I, I sort of arc, you know, dot, you know, do a rubbing of it and then I can move on to the next stage. And then the sort of, there's a sort of accretion of these things that are lost yet part of the painting, they made the painting. Um, and so they, they have often existed just as artist books in reproductions. And then I slowly got to start to exhibit them. Um, yeah. And it's really, if you, in seeing them when they are installed in like a space, it really has a feel of like a time-lapse animation, you know, yeah, you're I sort think of seeing that happen. Have you ever scanned them and just for yourself, just scanned them all and then created a cell animation of it? 
Um, no, but I, I have to deal with some of his images. So I look through them, you know, like I like kind of looking through them yeah, that way right. um, to see how they move. And I think that's why I've liked the book format right. for presenting them at times is to sort of page through them. Um, and yeah, it is like a, t uh, you know, I, what I like about them is they're kind of mysterious to me too, right? They're, 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 they sort of chronicle time in this, yeah, sequential way. Um, and you, and there's light and dark in them and, um, they kind of do this lateral field of time when they're all hung up and, um, and I like that they can, yes, be seen as a sequence, whether in a book or, you know, I've thought of doing like a film or, you know, I've thought of all these different yeah. types of things. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I like they also can be all on the wall together. I've shown segments of them in my last show at Altman Siegel. I, you know, I showed just portions of them. Um, you know, I think of making like a big, a giant book that can be paged through. That's sort of something that I haven't gotten to figure out how to do, but I like that there's a flexibility to them. Um, it, and um, yeah. I guess the, the one, one thing I was thinking about too with this, to me, and this is totally personal. It, it's based on like my interpretation of that kind of play between the paintings and the drawings is the paintings have a real beauty to them. But then they mm -hmm. also feel there's this feeling that they could have just happened. Like someone might not have made them. It just might be a yeah. surface that existed that was like carved out of a wall or something and put on the, you know what I mean? It has. No, no that's a, great to hear. I, I do a lot of work for it to feel that way. Yeah. So, so it, it, it works. So there's that <laughs> okay, good. And, and the beauty of that. But then there's also like that ready made feel of like this might have just existed. Yeah. And then at the same time, rubbings to me, for some reason, they always, like when I was young, we used to rub. Uh, coins and like they had this like memorial feel to it and then I remember mm -hmm. you you know people make gravestone etching or rubbings yep. to like memorialize and I used to go to my dad was would torment us when we were little he always used to go to like civil war sites and stuff for vacations and it was brutal but um, we would go to the Vietnam memorial and they would do rubbings there you know and there's this like memorialization yeah. Uh, built into the process, at least in my memory of that kind of rubbing, it's almost like there's a memorialization of each layer of the painting. It's almost like that's when that stage died and then it became something else. So there's this rebirth or a death and rebirth and like, which we all have in every painting that we do. Yeah. There's those stages, but you yeah. normally don't see them unless it's some sort of like glossy time-lapse photograph or something to where it's like, Oh, look how cool it looks, you know? Yeah. But it's, it's a really interesting, uh, combination you know there's a beauty there's an anonymity to it mm -hmm. and there's a sort of like life and death to it that's uh and also too i don't know like if for some reason this has nothing to do with like career or like any of that or art world stuff but making four paintings a year and i'm not saying you're doing just that but like let's say someone i had a friend who would it would take them almost a year to do a painting they were photorealistic and they were super laborious you know and like, there's something almost, like, I don't know. It's like, as you get older and you get closer to death in a way in your mind, you start thinking about time differently. And I know like, mm -hmm. I've talked to that with other people about like the idea of time when you get older. 
you it brings up this sort of like there's a value to time when you're only making so much you know and i remember my friend had this like when he would pick an image it was like a grave decision because i'm going to be spending a year on this thing <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. it better be good so there's that that's a really kind of interesting dynamic i think yeah i mean i i think that the um if the remainders offer my chance to sort of share that with others i think that and i think too the stages i put the painting through aren't aren't necessarily oh i changed my mind oh i changed my mind oh what do i do now i i actually am putting um the paintings through a specific amount of a specific amount not amount but a specific events yeah. that um they uh they aren't it isn't oh i can't figure this painting out and this is a different stage of it it is really like literally putting it through time and change um it's, it's kind of scripted through these notebook drawings they make ahead of time not that or that grow into the paintings there aren't sketches and then they um but there there's so much chance in making the work and that's how it's made but the remainder so i feel like um they it's just these it, the two operations of time at once that i can i can work with you know and um one that's atmospheric and chromatic and one that has yeah this sort of memorializing of the things that are past and i actually i think the grave rubbing was a definite source for me i remember i was i worked at cleaning rooms at this air at this bed and breakfast in Baltimore in art school. And there, it was very Baltimore because it had grave rubbings on the wall. Like This is like comforting, <laughs> like old medieval grave rubbings. And I remember those. And so when we were, I was kind of like trying to work out this idea. I researched how grave rubbings were made with a certain, I tried it with the wax, but it didn't, it was like these big wax crayons and then it wasn't right. So that's where I got the big graphite sticks. But you know, that was definitely um kind of embracing there is that embracing of the melancholy of the passing of time in my work and i, I think in the remainders is where it really exists yeah um i love the idea too that you're making like when we think of drawing like the default sometimes is that it's a preparatory activity for yeah. something bigger but i like the idea that you know when you're painting the drawings are coming from the paintings in real time it's not it's almost like the paintings informing the drawing literally as opposed mm -hmm. to the drawing being like something you make for the painting and then it gets thrown out yeah no it meant uh the drawing element of my work is is super integral i mean i think the paintings do this unify and do this thing that i can't do anywhere else yeah when a painting is done i just feel a sense of relief the thing that i is there you know what i mean yeah um, and, uh, you know, I can only get it through that way, but the, but the drawing totally extend on it and support it. And also like, can't happen. Paintings can't happen without the drawings, without the remainders, without the notebook drawings. I do, um, that's the source, the source material for them in many ways. And then the works on paper are like, why well, there was a period where I was only making three paintings a year. And I, that's all I was doing. I wasn't, my drawing practice was not a active. I wasn't making the large works on paper or the remainders. And it was torturous. It was hard. Like it was completely 
creatively stifling at times, you know? And once I started doing the works on paper um, and the remainder, it just gave me more space to go. And, and, and it, you know, so, um, you know, yeah. I guess drawing it, is important. Yeah, and it creates a, a, a shift in the studio. You know, if you were only doing the paintings at that pace, it might be, you know, I think we all, don't we all sort of build into our process some sort of like gear change in the studio? Just out of mm-hmm. like, <laughs> unless yeah. you're really okay with doing the same thing over and over again. You know what I mean? Yeah, I no, think, I think it's it's very important. I think so, right? It was just in the yeah. sense that I remember when I was younger, just out of school, you know, I was just working all the time. Like I just, you know, I was just feeling the energy and I just wanted to work all the time. And I would have teachers or, or you know, uh, mentors like older artists who've been around the block who would say like listen you got to take a break sometimes you got to step out you know step away mm-hmm. from the work step out of the studio live a little yeah. bit and I, I just didn't there wasn't a context for that and then now you know as I got older I kind of understood the value of like like if I had a show overseas that would be my two weeks that I'd take off and I'd go see stuff yeah. but that became so integral and so important as like a recharge and a visual like recalibration mm-hmm. that if you're only doing that one thing all the time, you know, we kind of build, build in these processes to sort of recalibrate as, you know, as an artist. And that's, you know, in different ways. Some people it's micro, other people it's like, I have to go live in, you know, South Africa for six months just to reset or something, (laughs) or I need a huge trip or I have to get out of the studio literally for three months after a show, you know, it depends on the person, but I think it is important. But how did this all start with you like you weren't I don't think you were probably a toddler making you know rubbings of abstract paintings so how when growing up like when how did like being creative come to you was it something you always did or was it in the family um it was something I've always done like within conscious memory um um I remember my mom saying that when I was pretty, when I was a toddler, I was happiest drawing. And so she really encouraged it. Um, and maybe it kept me busy. Yeah. <laughs> so she likes so that she too. Could do her thing. And, what did your parents well, do? She, I know she had two, uh, she had two other, there's, uh, my mom is an artist. She's a painter and she makes ceramics, but it, it you know, it never was something professional for her. Um, but she studied art and, um, she, uh, and my father's a physician. And um, my, uh, but she had seven kids. So, um, you know, that was her prime, you know, what she had to do most of the time. Oh, really? But she, that took, yeah. <laughs> that took hours out of the day? That's weird. <laughs> um, but she, you know, but she always, I, like she, um, she, we had a fairly large house, all shared rooms, but she, there was a, like a big hallway in like that the room circled around and she, that was her studio. She would paint there. And so after we go to bed, she would paint and um, she would often draw with me, you know, like let me hang out with her. And I learned a lot from watching her and, you know, she would work on it. Like uh, she worked on like a still life for five years. And, you know, I think in some ways, just watching her diligence with just painting every, uh, just for her need to do it a little bit um, all the time, you know, um, and was you know good to be around and um and uh she you know i would go to sleep with the smell of turpentine coming in from under the door 
and she got me a, uh, so she encouraged, she definitely encouraged me and supported me and taught me. She got me an oil painting set when I was 10. Um, I would paint in my room. Um, they eventually moved me down into the basement. I had this cool coal room. This, the coal room was my studio. Um, and that was fun. You know, it was this great space that, uh, um, I got to just make art in and there, there is a, a I'm from St. Paul and there's pretty good when I, in the eighties, pretty good education system there. I went to great public school and the, um, at, for fifth and sixth grade, went to a magnets arts grade school. Um, and then after some time in Catholic school, I got to go to this, uh, the arts, high, this arts high school. Uh, there's a public, uh, statewide public boarding school, um, which was really awesome. So, uh, you know, I, I had a, I, it was kind of what I've always done. Right. It was familiar. You know? Well, when your parents do it too, or, or a parent does it, there's, there's, you know, it's either one or the other, either it's something you're like, Oh, this is something you could do. And I'm interested in that. Or it's like, I'll never do that. <laughs> you know, you either push away or, yeah. but there is the feeling that this is something that you can do. And she was fitting it in. So was she basically bringing up, I mean, was she like the homemaker, like breaking, bringing, bringing up seven kids by herself? Cause dad was probably working, I guess all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she has, uh, when before that she, she had her degree in, English and art. So she taught English and art. So she had, you know, she did that, but at a certain point, yeah, that was what she did is run the ship. Um, and that's heroic. You know. That's a, that's a big <laughs> ship. Were you older or than the younger part of the group? I was the, I'm the fifth out of seven. And, and so I have two younger sisters and two older brothers and two older sisters. And there's like six years between me and my older brothers and sisters. And so, uh, yeah, I had these great older siblings that were, and I have to say my little sisters are great too, but that were sort of like a big influence on me and, you know, part of my upbringing. I would ways. think. So, yeah. Isn't it, isn't the rule, the unwritten rule that after three or four, like they're going to be the ones who raise the kids? <laughs> kind of, really kind can... of like that. Yeah. No, no, you know, it was, it was great. It was fine. You know, it's interesting. Uh, yeah. Um, I, they all had different influences on me and they're great. They're very nurturing. And, um, and also, you know, I think, you know, I had my mother who was, she's kind of, she was trained in abstract painting, but then she loved the masters, Michelangelo, you know, there are Michelangelo books and books from the Renaissance around the house. And then my oldest sister, by the time I was in high school, she was in college studying art history. Uh, she became a 19th century specialist with prints and drawings and she, a curator and so her, you know, that had her thoughts and books and stuff around. My other sister is a, um, was, is, she went down the contemporary art road. She, you know, she uh, studied first semester at the Art Institute of Chicago. I went and visited with her. She's a contemporary art historian. And so she was always like, she was more in the conceptual uh, end and, um, giving me like little Jenny Holzer pencils and stuff when I was 13 or something, you know, That's like, cool. and, and, um, and then my brother uh, is a writer and a poet and he uh, ran a, with other artists, like a underground gallery yeah. in St. Paul called Speedboat. And this was in the late eighties and early nineties when I was in high school. Um, and he, uh, you know, they had punk rock shows in the basement and had this cool gallery on top of the coffee shop next door. And so 
as there was very DIY, you know, attitude about art and community. And so that was really influential on me too. So it was a big mix of, of things. It wasn't just a parent or just a sibling. It was right. a lot. It was a confluence um, of creative activity. I mean, it sounds like yeah. a lot of your, your brothers and sisters that went into creative fields, which is, I mean, it's pretty cool. That's a, and not in a subtle way. I mean, sometimes it'll be, you know, someone who does something kind of creative in a more sort of business oriented field or something, but it sounds like a lot of them went into the arts. Yeah. I, yeah. No, I mean, no physicians. I, actually, my sister is a midwife. My oh, younger you sister's a midwife. My other sister's a therapist. Um, but my sister's a midwife is a singer in a band on her side. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone sort of does. And my other brother who has an art field is really good at like, renovating houses and sheet rocking ceilings and you know like he's got you know i think there's a value in 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 making things and my father as a physician uh, is values creativity and and you know it, i think there is a good attitude of course my father when i went away to art school wanted me to get a master's of art and teaching to teach kids you know like there it wasn't like oh go free you know it, there was like the fear of what this means to be an artist. And, you know, I said, okay, sure, dad. And then I sort of saw how much education classes I had to take. And I just ignored that and took painting classes and told him like, <laughs> the only way I'm going to be a good painter is if I take painting classes, I can't take these education right, classes. Right. So, you know, I ended up teaching kids later down the line, but, you know, I think there was this, you know, support um, with, you know, a little hesitation you know, like, don't go all, you know, like, can you at least try to figure out how to take care of yourself? But, um, you know, a value. Yeah, definitely. It. Well, so. the other advantage of siblings, older siblings, especially, is like the whole music introduction of music, usually. Oh, yeah. And families. <laughs> but it sounds like with the brother and the punk rock, the DIY, you know, basement shows and stuff. Um, and St. Paul, I'm trying to, you know, I went to St. Paul to play soccer when I was a kid in like a tournament that they had in uh -huh. uh, Minneapolis was like the head of it. But, you know, we would spend time there, but it, there was always kind of an indie scene there, right. As far as music's yeah. concerned, I don't, but what growing up, what was the, the whole music thing like where was there music in the house? Um, yeah, I mean, we, yes, there was, <laughs> Yeah, my brother had shows in, he was in a band when he was in high school so when I was like 10, you know, when he was in high school and, and uh, my dad was like, why don't you have shows in the basement? Oh, literally so, in the house. No, I'm, was, <laughs> that's amazing. I thought more so of like, so, you know, some classical or jazz is playing. Yeah, no, I mean, no, I had to take piano had lessons. My dad, my dad played rag, plays piano. Like he likes to play ragtime. Oh, that's cool. Piano. And, and then I took piano and I liked playing like the hits of the sixties. My sister played Beethoven and Mozart. Um, I'm not very musical personally, but I, it's been a big part of my life, but yeah, my brother, he had the, there'd be shows in the basement and, you know, um, so I would be literally like 10 years old in the basement with like a, you know, a punk eighties ish band, yeah. you know, I, that was just my, my natural state of being, which I thought every other kid did, but I apparently didn't <laughs> so, have to take money at the door, right. you know, but my parents were around. Yeah. You know, they're just like, no one can drink in the house. So they'd be like drinking across the street. This was in, you know, the drinking age was 18 or something. But it, it you know, so it was, I'm kind of, that was, uh, yeah, the music scene was a big part of life um, in the, in the Twin Cities and art and music was really connected. Yeah. Um, Remember those days? And 
yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, um, but I think I liked being alone way too much to sort of pursue that. There were a couple attempts at being in bands, but once I realized I had to stand in front of people and be looked at and work, you know, not be alone all the time, it was not the, not the life for me. It wasn't your so, calling. No, no. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it was the Twin Cities with the music scene and with the Walker was really a nice place to grow up. It's like a, a art, you know, an artistic kid. Yeah, so. for sure. And so how did that manifest like later in life? Are you still a big music fan? And did you go through different phases or, you know, like how, what's music to you now? Um, it's a big part of, um, I think, yeah, I have to listen to music in my big headphones to work. It helps me focus. And so, uh, you know, I, it, you know, and so of course it went through different stages, I think because of the nineties and indie rock, you know what I mean? I was at shows all the time, but I think I saw so many great things. It's not like going to, after a while in New York, it, 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 seeing shows in New York in my twenties and the two thousands was a bit different than a basement in the early nineties. And I kind of was more of the basement dweller music, you know, thing. So I, you know, so I, and my musician in my twenties, I had, uh, musician friends and was close to some musicians and so you know it's been part of my life in different ways but i um yeah it's i think that i need to listen to music to work to it helps me get focused and you know i even like if there's no one around it's headphones you know and um it's a i think since i grew up with indian punk it was like later in life that i was like oh sitting and listening to Bob Dylan really helps me just be here and, or, you know, like, um, it's, it's a rain. It, it depends on what I need to do. Right. If I need to be just sit still, it's more lyric based, slower music. If I need to, you know, hack at a painting with an ax, <laughs> it's <laughs> something else, <laughs> you know, I range between, you know, like Sleater Kinney and destroyer and Bach Mozart and Dylan and, whatever you know what i mean yeah, like totally. i it's a range but i have to say i'm not like uh I, novelty is not my thing in general yeah. uh you know i like to hone in so it's like i may know I'll be in really into one artist and listen to everything but i'm not like sitting here trying to listen to everything new i don't have that type of music file thing that i was around a lot growing up I, it's not like i'm trying to find the coolest new thing although I, i'm still listening to i like new new uh there's a, some I'm getting, I enjoy that I can find new music on Spotify, which feels really dorky, but that's way better than going to a record, what we used to do and go record shop and like stared down by, you know, nerdy music yeah. people, you know, like yeah, and that kind of dude culture that I had to deal with all the time. So I, I think that I, you know, I kind of find new music um, and that gets me going too, especially like, I'm kind of like women in their twenties that sound like music from the nineties, like yeah. things like that. Yeah. So. And well, we're just, I think we're the same pretty close in age, if not like months uh -huh. apart. And I think that kind of, you know, record store culture and like, you know, you, you were shaped by kind of what other people's tastes were depending on like the scene you were in, you know, the record shops that were near you and all that stuff. And, and like the idea now of Spotify and you could just listen to anything from anywhere is kind of entertaining, you know, if not, a little overwhelming but it's it's kind of great but i mean that kind of basement show aesthetic and you know that 
merging of like indie and punk and you know and hardcore and all that stuff was so intertwined with like art at that time at school for me you know and I played in bands and we had basement shows and all that that I can't really divorce my mentality from the process of of growing up that way I think I think it kind of Mm -hmm. ingrained things into my understanding of the value of aesthetics and you know and just being creative that are forever tied I think and I think a lot of people of my generation have a link to that in some way shape or form that is mm-hmm. probably totally different today but um did you watch that um documentary on other music no I haven't yet I, thanks I, for the reminder I but. just happened upon it. I didn't even know it existed <laughs> yeah. and I had a friend yeah I've I, heard about it I have a friend who and uh, I toured with in another band and he had worked at other music for years and it was cool to, uh-huh. I mean, that was like one of those places, right? Where yeah. you would go yep. in and, yes, you know, you had to buy the CD based on the description and where, yeah, it's just a really interesting way of, of being in. And the, the same thing happened with art for me. I don't know if it was like this for you. I, I didn't go to New York when I was an undergrad except for once. I mean, it was magazines. There were like three magazines that informed mm-hmm. me of what was going on. And that was yeah. the canon, basically. And, yeah. and now it's just a whole different thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Would you, I mean, how did you get, well, you went to Micah, so how did you get to, um, you know, having creativity around when you're younger and that feeling of, like, that's part of existence to, like, okay, here's something that I'm going to move to Maryland and study? Um, you know, I... Um I've just applied to different art schools and uh, I thought I would always end up in Chicago when I was growing up. It's close. It's um, good, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that was the big city, you know, but I, I think that I, I had friends that went there from this great arts high school and I, the arts high school I went to was so, pro- it was, it was very progressive, experimental. We didn't have grades. It was amazing. Um, but, uh, and uh, I loved it. Um, but there was an idea that maybe I needed some more like traditional training <laughs> even though I got a lot of it from my family and my mother anyway, but I, I, um, so Micah have more of that. Also, it was far away. Always which, a perk. Though, <laughs> Get the hell out of then, there, you know? <laughs> no, I mean, I love my family, but I, you know, it was good to just go far away. And then I got into RISD, Micah in Chicago, and I think I got a better scholarship at Micah. And then RISD, like my, one of my brothers was like, I've been to Providence. It's just like St. Paul. I'm like, okay, I'll go to Baltimore. You know, the way you make decisions. When you're <laughs> right, here. right. Um, and, uh, you know, then I taught at RISD later. I'm like, wow, it's nice here. <laughs> what would happen if I went? But uh, Baltimore was great. Micah was great. I had great teachers. Uh, Kentisa, Joe Smale was a really great teacher. Howie Weiss, I, the painting department was kind of awesome there, the way they set up. Now that I've taught at different places, like I can take a class called painting over the lines or abstraction drawing, or, you know, um, I, you know, um, no, it was, it was great to be there. And we would go up to New York, you know, yeah, uh, take, far, the, you know. take the bus. Remember I took the bus and I walk, like I was with a friend that I actually went to high school with. And um, we first time in New York and we we're like, let's they drop you off at the met and picked you up in soho because that's where the galleries were and we were afraid to take the subway so we walked all the way from the met to soho. <laughs> it's a long it's a long <laughs> yeah, walk but you're what you're 19 oh yeah whatever it doesn't matter you know you got to see a lot so definitely we did that and um did that plant a seed in your head of like oh one day i'm gonna live here i want to live here 
Um, I think that I loved the art and, you know, the city kind of intimidated me. Um, I had friends that did the New York studio program. Um, And so I visited them when they were there. So, you know, that started giving me a couple ideas maybe about it, but I didn't feel ready. I I did my study abroad in Italy, which was really important um, for me. And, uh, and uh, I, I, you know, I decided to go straight to grad school. Um, and that was for multiple, I was encouraged to, I, I just, my dad was like, grad school is just going to get more expensive. <laughs> so oh, just really? go was, if you want to go. Wow, that's, that's yeah, he's like, insightful. And, and well, when you have been putting kids through college oh, for true. years, you kind of see. So he, um, he's like, if you know, you're just, you, you're going to go into debt. Why just go into less debt than more debt, you know? So um, just go now. And I think that I wasn't ready to leave school. I liked school. I liked art school. So I, um, I, yeah, I, I think it was planted in my mind, but I was intimidated by the city because I like quiet things, you know? Um, but I also like artists and I like art and I like, you know, so, um, I didn't come to New York until, well, I went straight to graduate school to, at Cranbrook out of Michigan. And I spent the summer in New York in between, I had an internship at the drawing center and my, one of my friends from high school had a loft um, in Greenpoint and my a friend from college lived there. And, you know, they gave me a little space in the back for $200 a month. The other roommates didn't really know I was there. <laughs> there was like a back door. <laughs> and so I, you know, I had this summer there and then I'm like, okay, I, I, I do want to do this. I want to move here. This is great. And, you know, um, that was 1998 and then I moved to 99. And um, yeah, I think also when I got out of grad school, it was like I could move home. Or like I know more people in New York than I do anywhere else if I don't include my family in the Twin Cities. I just, that's where my friends were. And um, it's where it just seemed to, you know, this is what I wanted to do and where to be. So yeah, we, I think we moved to the city at the same exact time. It was in 99, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Yeah. Um, so you entered too, right? During like the boom of things. I guess so. Yeah. Did you get a taste of that? Like of, you know, or was it, yeah. I, cause I think back I mean, of when, I, yeah, no, but I think back of when I first moved to New York and just how like robust it was at that point, you know, and you're sort of, I think you're for a while you're informed by like your perception of the city and the, your place in the art world or like your relationship to all that stuff is like kind of how you come into it you know and then you learn the hard way that these things are cyclical things go up and down and you know all yeah. that stuff and I was fortunate enough to have some friends who were you know artists who had been around the block like former teachers and stuff who would give me that kind of like advice of like you know well it's like a riding a wave you know there's going to be you know swells and there's going to be slow points and you just have to keep keep at it you know stuff like that but it was really like you know the early 2000s was like jumping in the city yeah I mean I had yeah so I had friends that you know got started having shows and success very quickly I was never you know I I think I was interested in such quiet slow thing I mean I would try to be a little different but it just wouldn't really work um you know so and then yeah and there was like people that that was like when people had like web design jobs or oh, jobs yeah. where they would make money 
Remember those? <laughs> those times. And, and uh, I worked as a nanny, uh, or I was a guard at the Met um, for about seven weeks. That was actually really formative and great until it, I needed to have, you know, I needed to have time to paint. And so I got a job as a nanny. I worked, got ten, paid $10 an hour, but I, had, I could wake up and work and then go pick up the girl from school. So it gave me a lot of freedom to make things. So, yeah, I mean, I was witnessing it a lot and witnessing its effect on, on friends, you know, that it was hard to see some friends succeed and some not. And also when you're young and people say, this is how you should do it. This is how you need to do it. This is how you should make your paintings. This is how many you should make. You know, I there was a lot of that around me. And um, I, you know, I think I, yeah, I got exposed to it a bit. Um, I was in the Marie Walsh Sharp program 2001 and 2002. So that it, it kind of introduced me to a larger group of people and- Where was it at that point? Program. Was it still in Dumbo? It was in, it was, yeah, uh, no, it wasn't. It was in uh, Tribeca. Yeah, lower Manhattan, right? Yeah, yeah. But that, wait, what was the residency that was in World Trade Center? LMCC, maybe? Okay, yeah, yeah, was, yeah, that's right. Yeah, because right. I, I mean, I moved, it was October of 2001 that I started the Sharp Studio program, so. Wow, um, that's And I was, at, my nanny job was in Tribeca as well. Oof. So I was in that, I was around the wreckage for a, a long time. Yeah. I was present. Um, so, yeah, that was, you know, it was just, I feel like those years I was just pretty like close to the edge and close to the flame of life in many ways. Definitely. Uh, yeah. Um, and it was a, you know, a good, uh, formative experience in many ways, but I, I think I witnessed a lot, um, and through trial and error just had to sort of stick to my guns, but it's, you know, on what I wanted to try, I guess too, I was developing my work, you know, it, it wasn't there. Yeah. Um, what were you doing when you first moved to the city? Was it say, was it like abstract process driven work or was it loose figurative paintings? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I had in grads, I, you know, I, I, I started working with the materials I'm working now in grad school. Cause I had been interested in fresco after studying in Italy in specifically decayed frescoes and kind of how to turn this, how to do, do this. It, it took a while. I, I, in grad school, I made like large installations my first year with like multiple panels to make kind of like a sequence that came around you. And then I started working with spackle on, on wood. That's what I, I, we call it limestone polymer. That's the first two ingredients of vinyl spackle. That's what I use. I, um, the summer in New York, a friend worked for Donald Sultan and was like, you should try this. And so that's because he works with that. Other artists have as well. So I work with that on a wood panel. So I was doing that, but I was doing it like a, I still work. I work on a drafting table. So um, I was working, you know, I brought my drafting table to New York and I, but I was working kind of smaller scale. And it was a bit at that time because of the kind of my, I was always sort of an abstract thinker, but I, I've also always been interested in the everyday and the colloquial. So at that time, I was kind of integrating these images of like figures doing things like scrubbing a tub or walking down the street with these sort of like Baroque, like dramatic things happening around them, like a thought space. And then these like every like, but the thing is, my figures are really small and invisible. <laughs> So it's like they it was like they I, it took a little bit for me to be like, no, these figures actually aren't even really here 
or I, I started when I was in the Sharp Studios and I started to see people looking at my work more, I realized like they ended when they saw the figure. And so I was like, the figure needs, I took the figure out. I had got back in 2001, September, I actually went back to Assisi uh, to Italy with my family and saw these frescoes by Cimabue again. And I realized they needed to be um, more abstract and more physical and more like a field and less pictorial. So sorry, I just sort of whizzed through a lot there, but you know, I came to New York kind of in, with the same interest, but it's just that like, because of like trying to maybe, I think it's good to try on different hats and be like, should I do it this way? Should I do it that way? You know, you kind of work through, so you know, I was just figuring out what I didn't want to do basically, or what wasn't working to get to what was working yeah did you feel like um in the the way of working that you were developing were there people like contemporaries that you felt like you were in line with or that you were really engaged with their work that was kind of inspiring or were you looking back more towards you know i mean obviously in talking about italy there was a lot of surface and tactility there that you were tapping into but did you feel also like a connection with some, some people around you that were making work or was it kind of like you were not that, you know what I'm saying? Like we're, yeah. Every, I mean, everyone's inspired by everything they go look at in a way, but what, was there something directly that you felt like, okay, these are some of the people that I'm really feeling aligned with. You know, it, I would say in those like early two thousands, not really, yeah. <laughs> which was kind of challenging, but I was always looking and always inspired. Um, I think that, you know, um, uh, I was always searching back in ways and or encountering things. I think that later, like, I think that um, with some travels, you know, like, I think 2008, I got to go to France, to Paris and France, and I saw like Simone and Thai for the first time. And then I think around that time too, I think a lot of, I think I was always interested in artists that did their own thing and also artists that pushed abstraction and pushed painting. So even though my work is so different from them, I've always been inspired by like Charlene Von Hale or Amy Silliman or Jacqueline Humphreys and sort of like what they push painting to do. Um, even though my interest and in where I was coming from was really, really different. I think those that sort of, the way they pushed abstraction was interesting to me, even though I wasn't going to necessarily do what they did. Um, and that was sort of around the time I started showing 2009 a lot, of, you know, um, but I think also like, yeah, I, I again, it, I never was, I never ever felt like I fit in or that there was like a contemporary conversation that I would say, this is what I'm part of. And that didn't necessarily bother me. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was hard, but I, I think that I just thought of time in such a bigger way that it, it wasn't the most crucial thing for me. And also, it's just like, you see how things always change, you know? Right. So, um, oh, ja yeah, I remember also seeing Jack Whitten for the first time at MoMA, right, right, right. his early work. Yeah. That was like totally like, what is this? This is amazing. You know, but there, I was always kind of visiting old friends, like, Agnes Martin and Anne Truitt, you know, oh, um, things so like that. Have you read her books? So, yes, oh, yes. So yeah, they're very helpful. Yes. They're very good. I agree. Um, uh, so, you know, I feel like I, I had this professor at uh, Micah, Dr. Richard Coulter. He was the philosopher in residence. It was a very interesting position. I did an independent study with him 
um, on Merleau-Ponty and phenomenology when I was a senior. And he would be he would be talking to you and he'd be like, my friend Samuel Beckett. And he was like, well, he, was he friends with, I think he actually was friends with Samuel Beckett. But then he'd be like, and my friend Aristotle. And you'd be like, oh, <laughs> That's a you know, one-way friendship. Yeah, 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 yeah. But this way we kind of like <clears throat> you may not always belong to your moment, right? But, oh, I feel it totally. I'm locked up with you, you on that. Yeah. Yeah. But you have this larger family and dialogue you're having with art that has existed forever yeah. and may exist in the future. Or you may find, you know, I feel like contemporaneously right now, like Patricia Tribe is a friend of mine and her paintings are really different from me, but we both think about time a lot. And, you know, so she's someone I love having conversations with and Dash is someone, you know. Um, uh, so I feel like it wasn't there in the 2000s because of what was going on, a very flashy painting, very, you know, but I think I've slowly started to find, um, a, you know, dialogues. Um, yeah, definitely. No, I, I so. think that's so interesting to hear, you know, and, and I was saying I'm in lockstep because I feel like a, I've never felt like I've always felt like I'm at the wrong time. Like my work mm -hmm. never fits kind of with anything. And the other side of that is like when people used to come into my studio at school or just after school, you know, the same like five names would pop up, you know, it's just like, Oh, you must like Alex Katz or, you know, Sheila or John Wesley, or it was just the same group of people. But I was looking and interested in, work that like I would go to Dia Beacon for inspiration yeah and you know it the influences don't necessarily always make sense visually with what you're looking at and people yeah. just assume that you're into one thing but um mm -hmm. there's so much that goes into influence and so much that goes into you know what you find in other artists it could be like you know looking at Agnes Martin that I mean you I would when you bring up like an old friend like she's your old friend right <laughs> but you know you look Paint at painterly I don't know we might not have gotten along but whatever right right so <laughs> but but you look at work some work does align like I remember when I first saw Alan Darkangelo's work and there was like a visual connection I felt to that that I I just didn't know his work for a long time I came to it really late and um but then there's other people like on Kawara something you know or you know, Blinky Palermo that I love that work and there's like formally and just there's so much stuff going on there that I that resonates with me, but you would never know looking at my work necessarily. So yeah. it's it's always interesting, I think, to to mine that or to hear other artists and like who they're interested in, that it's not just gonna be people that look like the work, of course. No, I yeah, and also I think we're always trying to you know yeah, I mean, it's not like we're trying to mimic something that came before. We're looking for people that have, for me, it's like people that have honed in on what they're doing. And someone like Agnes Martin, who's visually very different from me, but I think sometimes there's like a cadence to her work or a feeling of light that's interesting. And she also is someone that those are paintings, but she also incorporated drawing into them and she thought of them really differently. Um, and she sort of like worked within the realms of minimalism, but, but didn't think of herself as a minimal, you know, so I think that there's, you know, I think sometimes it's what's written about the work, what, what the artist has written, what, you know, their approaches, um, their, you know, like that, that becomes the inspiration, not necessarily the aesthetics or the appearance of it. Um, 
and similar, you know, like Anne Truitt, like my work, is, her work is sculptural and deals with color and perception, but has a really different like tactility than mine, you know, like I couldn't make that stuff, you know, like I didn't have that, you know, so um, it took me a while, you know, I remember seeing her work for the first time in Baltimore, uh, the BMA and, you know, um, you know, and she's someone, she also kind of stands alone too. And again, I think those are artists that have always inspired me too. Yeah, they've done their own thing. Definitely like a badass, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she's. I just love those books, and I love the work. And then yeah. I realized I came to the books after finding her mm -hmm. work, and I was late to yeah. that party. You know, there's a lot yeah. of like late to the party things. Like you know, it, I love that though. When you find something, it's just the same way with music. Like you know, there'll be a jazz artist from like the '40s that I missed or something. You know, they're like those little. Oh yeah, it's just uh, for some reason that's really uh, exciting when you bump into something that you just missed. You know, like there was when I was getting into sort of more world music and you know, like Nigerian sort of, um, you know, like high life and 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 then also like Felakuti and all that. You, there would be like the cast of Usual Suspects that you would see in the record store or something. But then like now you can find these bands that were barely known, but it's so good. You know, like this peripheral stuff but the idea of like agnes martin i was thinking about and you at talking about the drawing in there there's kind of like this element of drawing and process but it's not necessarily about authorship or it doesn't mm -hmm. scream out that yeah. and i think that's yeah. something that i felt with and that's why i was thinking so much about when i was looking at your work at people like fenez and microstoria but i don't know if you know that music that kind of like glitch, no, kind of ambient but you might know brian eno and stuff like that yeah. So that yeah. was like the precursor to a lot of when mm -hmm. the computer became like introduced to sort of guitar stuff and it became kind of ambient. And there's a lot of stuff out there. Maybe we could make like a joint playlist or something. Okay. I'd be curious if, if you like this stuff at all. But it really sonically, I think it's doing things that I imagine that your paintings are doing, or at least that I respond to conceptually. Mm -hmm. That, uh, but remember, like, if you were into all that indie rock stuff, do you remember that band Codeine? Yeah, kind of. They I don't know if I got really into slow. them, but I remember them. Yeah, yeah they were yeah. so good because they were kind of like, it was like if you took Unwound or something and it just slowed it down and made it more uh -huh. mellow, but it still had that, like, punch, you know. There was yeah. a pace to that that was so slow and, like, unexpected from the sort of, like, aggressiveness of that music, but there was a beauty to it, too, that I can totally like parallel with your work, you know, but mm -hmm. I have a problem with art where I can't divorce it from imagining what bands and what music sound like in relation to it. It's kind of a fun thing for me to do, you know? Yeah. But yeah, I was thinking about that today. I mean, but it sounds like you're rocking out the Bob Dylan in, in the studio. Well, I, I know it's all over the place. It's so all over the place. I don't really rock out to Bob Dylan. I, I was, come on, don't I break the fantasy. There. I'm just picturing you like, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not right. I'm, I'm, I, it's embarrassed. It's actually, I'm really embarrassed sometimes about my musical, but it, it's kind of like whatever it takes to get through, you know? Uh, why would you be, ever be embarrassed about music? I, I listen to, to K-pop when I'm working sometimes. Yeah. BTS is know. great. Just... Like I'll listen to Taylor Swift. <laughs> I don't care. I'll watch American Idol. Yeah. I'll do it all. I mean, there was yeah. once. No, that's what I'm saying. Whatever, whatever. Yeah. That's where it's like, um, you know, I do this thing that when the, world is getting me down or I'm having a hard time focusing and I have a tape Walkman um, and I have all my tapes. Yeah. I have all my tapes from high school and college 
not all of them, but I have this box of tapes and CDs and stuff. And so, you know, when I need to block out the world and not have my phone on me and I listen to, I, I but I have new tapes because I never had a CD Walkman. So I have tapes of stuff I listen to in the 2000s or whatever. But, you know, I, I sort of use it as a way to like kind of block out distractions and or like listen to what I listened to like in high school or college when I made art. And that really helps me just be present in the work. It's kind of weird. So I'll listen to Who's Do and make a big mess. And then it's like kind of what I did in high school. <laughs> it's <laughs> the proverbial like uh, blanket, like the comfort blanket. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like kind of a way to sort I just feel like also when I make art, it's like I wear different, I have to wear different clothes. I have to allow myself do all these tricks to forget about all my responsibilities and to, and to forget about language and community like verbal communication and just get into some you know state that um is you know and and that all the music helps me helps me do that and so it's always yeah. like i have these studio rules and one of them is to, you need the right music for the right situation sometimes that's all you need is to just put something else on it, you know, it, or turn it up turn it up louder that helps totally you know? it's such a beautiful thing too i feel like we you know, there's that adage that and in art, you're always trying to capture that imagination from when you're younger and you're just exploring things for the first time. And you're, mm-hmm. you always want to get back to that. And I think like to your point, I, f- I feel that way, too. There is a nostalgia. I get a nostalgia and sometimes it plays out in music or art or whatever. But and it reminds me of those times when everything felt new and there was that energy. And I think we're always trying to find that. And that's kind of what creativity does in a way. It takes you away from paying the bills and the day-to-day bullcrap you know that you just want to escape and you want to feel like there's something bigger to life that is unknown and it's not just like filling in your calendar or whatever you know well and i think that's our responsibility as an artist i don't think it's escape i'm sorry i don't like responsibility i I don't (laughs) no no (laughs) no but i'm joking in a good way (laughs) in a good way like it's my job to sort of like create the space in which I can explore and get deep into this thing, totally. Yeah. You know, and and you know, and other people's jobs are running the world, right? You know? yeah. So, and and so, um, you know, and then if I do all these things, help me get there, then I can function better to do the other things that I need to do. You know, instead of trying to do it all at once, I, and you know, I mean, that's been sort of the trick of pandemic life and parenting is not having that separation as much, but having to sort of make it um, and figure out how to do it. Uh, but I, I think, uh, you know, I just think it's, I talk a lot about it with my students, like, what do you need to be creative? We all need different things. It's, it, there's no one thing. And what is it that you need? Um, and there's no prescription for it, but you need to figure out what that is. And it's trial and error, but like, um what you ate <laughs> like all this stuff um there is this sort of like coffee table book called what is it called daily rituals of artists have you ever heard of that i got it i got it as a gift from a family member i don't I, it's it's not deep reading but he oh all- that's my specialty <laughs> these days i don't have time for deep reading anymore no i i and during the pandemic when i had to sort of sit down and figure out how to work i listened to this other on I don't usually listen to audiobooks. I usually listen to music, but I think I just needed to sort of needed something for my brain to latch on to while I worked in the space between my bed and the window for the two hours a day I got to do it in my home. Um, and it was, he also wrote this book called Daily Ritual, Ritual Women at Work. 
And so it goes through all these different, and it's not just visual artists, it's, it's um, and it's kind of entertaining, but he talks about these women, these female artists through time of different rituals they had and how they structured their day and how they did their work. So you have 19th century artists, you know what I mean? It's not, it, and it's from dancers to writers to musicians, and you probably would like it. And it was kind of a nice thing to help me figure out how to make that space for myself within the pandemic and just think about how different people do, do these things. Um, and it, yeah, and it also was like, yeah, it was easy. And I think it's okay to give ourselves those easy reads right now. No, so. and not Kierkegaard 24 seven every day. <laughs> <laughs> no. Foucault all the time. Yeah, that we, I, I don't know if you feel the same way, but as a parent and a teacher and, you know, like I, I thrive off of reading certain things that give me that energy of like a deeper conceptual meaning to things. And then I just want to watch like, you know, soccer games or like videos of people crack, getting their back cracked or something. I don't know, something that like is like a total mind escape from like the heaviness of everything. It's like a balance, right? You got to find that. Balance. Yeah, I think, and it's good, and it's healthy. What I've been doing uh, since I, you know, I'm home every evening for my daughter's bedtime, and we we realized once school ended that we, she's in fourth grade. We uh, missed, I guess she was in third grade last year, but we missed riding the train and reading together. And so I was like, well, I, every night I'm going to read next to you in bed. And so I started just reading her books. Uh, and it was, and she's uh, quite a reader and kind of less expressive. So it was a way to connect with her too. And now it's become like, wait, I got to get home and or I got to get, I can't wait to just read this book I'm reading. You know, she, we're not reading together. I'm just reading, she's reading her own thing and I'm reading my thing, but it's her books. And that I don't, I don't really like watching TV or it, it doesn't really provide escape for me. It kind of just overstimulates me and I can't sleep. So this sort of reading these uh, young adult and children's books has been sort of my weird escape um, of stories to get into. But then I'm, I've also been reading memoirs or um, bio biographies. I think that's very helpful. I read the Clarice Lispector biography, which I never could carry. It's really big. And so I could never like carry it around and read with me. So I thought, oh, now that I can't go anywhere, I can finally read this book. So it took me a long time, but I read just a little bit every night and I can get through it. So it was a balance between, uh, it's been a balance between reading sort of biography type books, memoirs between artists or musicians or whatever. I read a, a, a doctor's memoir recently and then like these children's books. Yeah. And it's been kind of stabilizing. Yeah, so. I, I had a, a stretch there of uh, jazz biography. I was reading about like every jazz musician and then lots of Dr. Seuss. It was a great combo. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> right? Having children can yeah. be a beautiful thing, you know? It just t totally recalibrates your life in a nice way, I think. Yeah, yeah. But, um, well, so you have this show up now. It's like, Yes. Up, up, and people can go see yeah. it. Is it by appointment yes. or is it no, only certain people go. in at a time? Like, honestly, yeah. when do we ever go to a gallery and there's like 80 people in the gallery? It usually kind of works yeah. itself out, right? So people yeah, can it's just the go. Lower east side. So, yeah. you know, it's not like throngs of people. Right. And I mean, if there's too many, I think there's like a 10 minute, 10 people limit in there, yeah. they'll say, can you just wait a little bit? You know, and that I don't think that happens very often. And, and you know, the, the paintings, I really, I was really, I really wanted to make a space for people. It's a, to like slow down, like, like an offering, <laughs> you know, the work, it's one painting per wall. 
I, the paintings focus on different times of day and I just wanted it to be really slow. Um, and so it's, it's nice that it's not crowded. I think a quiet room is, is good for, for this show. And yeah, you can go um, anytime. It's open Tuesday through Sunday, which is nice. It's kind of open more than it used to. So that gives it more possibility. So 10 to six, so you can just go. And it's open until February 28th. I'm going, um, I'm going this weekend. Okay. Uh, apologies Great. that Thank I haven't you. seen it before. No, it's okay. This came up kind of last minute. I so. was uh, isolated out in Jersey for a couple of weeks because my wife came back from a work trip and, you know, COVID mm-hmm. crap. Yeah. And it's, yeah. So, um, but yeah, everyone should go check it out for sure. Um, I'm excited to see it. And it was really great to talk to you. Thanks so much. Okay, nice to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Stranger, that's real.